Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Farming for Passive Income show. Today, we have a hustler in the house. We also have Mr. Kansas City himself in the house, Logan Freeman. Logan, welcome to the show, man. Ah, man, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I don't know why I saw that you are Mr. Kansas City, but we got to know, how did you become Mr. Kansas City? Well, it's self-proclaimed and uh, it's not been vetted. I'm definitely not uh, blue check mark verified on Mr. Kansas City. And most folks that know Kansas City would say that Patrick Mahomes has that, uh, you know, um, you know, title. But, uh, you know, I, I, I a couple of years ago, I was uh, starting to get, you know, focused on LinkedIn. And I said, what would make people stop and look at my profile and I thought about it for a while and I was like okay what if I put Mr. Kansas City up there and I can't tell you how many times people have reached out to me how how many times it's it's just been brought up and um, why I'm Mr. Kansas City and like I said self-proclaimed Mr. Kansas City but it is a great marketing and branding tool that has helped uh, folks that are looking or interested in Kansas City, find me and reach out to me. And it's it's created some really great uh, conversations and relationships out of that. I I totally hear you, man. I thought that was hilarious the first time I saw that. Um, and I, I do follow sports. So I was like, oh, yeah, maybe Mahomes. But I don't know. Yeah. I like real estate way better. So you're way better, Mr. Kansas City. I think so, too. <laughs> yeah. So, Logan, um, tell us your journey, man. You were in the NFL for a while. How did you end up in commercial real estate? Yeah, I mean, long story short, I'll make it because it's a, a long story, but grew up on a, you know, in a farming community in Jefferson City, Missouri. First job okay. was always, you know, been in the hay fields throwing hay and being tall and somewhat strong. I was on the I was on the trailer, so I was stacking my first day. I remember. I, I wore short sleeves and, um, you know, I showed up and they're like, all right, man, you're up on the trailer. I'm like, so I'm not walking the field. So I'm like, oh, I got the easy job. No, I had to stack that trailer all day long. And oh, yeah. I tell you what, I learned quick on how not to make those things fall off because my first step, my first couple stacks fell straight off. So yeah. I think some folks here could probably, um, you know, relate to that. But, you know, it just got started working at an early age and just had a work ethic kind of put inside of me from my mom who worked two jobs to really help us um, elevate, you know, ourselves. And and I really respect her uh, for that. But I, I learned the value of a dollar early on and uh, was a collegiate football player. So had a good high school and collegiate career, undrafted free agent with the Oakland Raiders. And when I was cut from the Raiders, man, I, I had the opportunity to continue with the 49ers it just the passion, the drive, the intentionality around it was not um, it was not fueling my fire. And so mm -hmm. my whole goal was to get on the practice squad for two seasons, take that money and start investing in real estate. Uh, I took a different approach and uh, went back to school, finished my master's degree. And, uh, you know, a big thing happened uh, through that. I had a big physical transformation. NFL combine, I was 335 pounds. Um, in less than six months after being cut, I was 219 pounds. So lost. Oh, uh, that's close crazy. Lost close to 120 pounds in six months, but through that physical transformation, uh, the better transformation happened in my in my brain and uh, the way that I thought about the world. So I picked up books and I started reading and learning about business. So yeah, I was going for my master's in business, but you know that's a school uh, you know degree. I wanted the real world degree, and when I graduated, I. I had a job for, you know, the whole time I was finishing up my master's degree because, you know, you don't get paid as an undrafted free agent. So I was making 265 cold calls a day, going to school at night and spending all Saturday in the, 
in the library just catching up. But um, mm-hmm. my dad had struggled with uh, drugs and alcohol his whole life. And, um, you know, after, when he came up to, to help me move out of my apartment uh, when I graduated, uh, less than four weeks later, my dad had passed away. And so just really quickly, you know, so I'm, you, you can imagine this young man, 24 years old, going through this physical, mental transformation, trying to get his life started, had a new job. I was getting ready to go and uh, everything got put on pause for a minute. And I had to really take a step back and say, wow, you know, your decisions really do um, dictate your outcomes. And so and each one matters. And so through that reading, through that personal professional development, I uh, started picking up threads and, um, you know, folks that kept talking about, you know, different income streams, whether that be real estate or businesses that they owned or certain, um, you know, different income streams they had created. And that got me really interested in in not just being paid for my time, because that's all I had done up up until that point. Mm -hmm. And I was looking for leverage and I uh, found leverage in the way of getting assets to work for you. And that was a big light bulb for me. I had a few real world mentors that were living this out on a regular basis. So I got to see it. Um, I got, I learned it. So it was complete at the theoretical level, but I got to see it uh, applied at the, and effective at the applied level uh, out in the real world. And that just, that just stirred up a fire inside of me trying to learn. So I, I, I went to, you know, I went to Kansas city, got a job, had a job for a little bit, left, went and got another job, left, got another job. And I was fired from that last job. And when I was fired five years ago, I kind of had a conversation with my wife and, and she was like, you need to, you need to chase your passion, your dreams and go build something. And so that's when I got started full-time in real estate and was able to um, land a gig as a head of acquisitions for a $50 million fund. Their whole thesis was to buy uh, single family homes at scale, buy them, rent them, renovate them, rent them out. And then we did a big refinance on 265 homes at one time. And um, I was really curious on how that was structured. And, you know, they told me the structure of syndication. I had never heard that word before. So I went back to the books, back to the conferences, learned it, moved my license because I wasn't interested in single family homes. So I moved my license, started brokering commercial and multifamily properties and uh, got a bunch of transactions under my belt. Got a little change in my pocket, bought my first couple deals. First rent, you know, first fastly ran out of capital and experience and said, OK, I think it's time to find some partners and build a business around actually buying, managing, uh, renovating real estate. And so this is in 2019. I found some partners. We started to purchase our first uh, multifamily deals together. And then boom, COVID. COVID's here. And so we had $35 million of shopping centers under contract going into COVID. Oh, wow. Retail shopping centers. So we dropped every single one of those contracts and said, okay, what are we going to do? And we decided to go you know, head first into multifamily, we were able to pick up around a thousand units from April to October um, or December, I guess, of that year, 2020. And we've added another 400 units, but we've also gotten back into shopping centers, office buildings, and now getting into flex and industrial uh, space as well. Uh, and we picked up a couple more multifamilies uh, across the, across the, you know, the sector, but um, that's the trajectory, man. It's been a fast, crazy, uh, ride every single day. Um, and we've really been building up the team. Uh, so we've got 25 employees now and really been building up the operational team to get ready for the next opportunity, whether that be development, uh, buying land, sitting on it, doing some horizontal improvements, whatever, just getting ready um, when the next buying opportunity happens. And uh, we're, we're, we're positioning ourselves to make another big wave here whenever that, uh, that opportunity comes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's really smart. So 
when you guys decided back in 2019, your partners came together, you looked at the landscape and you talked about your investment thesis. How did you guys decide on which asset classes to go after and, and why those ones? Yeah, you know, we we do a lot of this talking in in regards to and brainstorming on thesis and what what's going to drive it. And you know, first is market, right? So we're Midwest focused. We're in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, so what do we know? We know Kansas, we know Missouri, we know Nebraska, Iowa, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. So we honed in on our markets. Then it was okay. What asset classes do we know and have experience in? That was office, neighborhood retail, and multifamily. So we, we said, OK, well, we like those asset classes um, and why? Well, there's macro you know trends for each one of those that I can talk through. But, you know, then it's like, OK, well, what is what is investor capital looking for? So we have to pair up the opportunities that we see with investor capital, because if, if it's the greatest yeah. deal in the world, but you can't raise capital and you can't get investors on board, then you're not going to be able to do the deal. And we've only run into that a, a couple of times in the office sector, believe it or not. Now, I'm sure that's a um, you know light bulb for a lot of people. No, not a lot of people are interested in investing in office right now, is, which is why we are. Potentially. Sounds like a good time to buy. <laughs> so, you know, that, that those are our three main food groups. We've always been yeah. interested in self-storage, mobile home parks and industrial. I have a lot of experience in self-storage, just haven't been able to find an opportunity there. Uh, mobile home parks, same thing. Uh, very limited supply out there. You also need a really strong operational team, and we weren't willing to build that up at the same time. So um, then it was industrial. Well, the big boys are, are really playing in the industrial space. And so there's a nice little sweet spot, kind of 150 to 300,000 square feet flex industrial. So we've got some office in the front, and we've got warehouse in the back. And not just one big, you know, triple net lease for 25 years. So it's not real attractive to to REITs because it's not big enough, and um, the leases maybe aren't structured there yet. Um, and so we see some value add uh, opportunities there. So we saw, okay, what new investors looking for? Well, everybody during COVID was like, well, everybody's going to need a roof over their head, so that's probably a good asset class. And then industrial uh, was a shining star through that whole uh, scenario because of e-commerce. Yeah. E-commerce went through the roof, and so it's like, okay, uh, what what do new you know what do e-commerce brands need? Well, they need last mile distribution and all of that stuff. So um, yep. now there's different macro trends for uh, industrial, uh, whether that be onshoring or uh, folks trying to take control of their own supply chains uh, and make sure that they can control that so they can deliver their products. So you know, I think that's a a nice macro trend there. Retail is interesting because. Um, you know, if you look at the retail sector, big boxes struggle, malls have struggled, struggled. But what has really done well, strip centers and neighborhood retail centers, the ones that you drive by twice a day, you go get uh, your milk from, maybe there's a grocery store in there, maybe there's a dollar store in there, maybe you get your tires changed in there, your haircut, uh, you get your chiropractor session going on, get your physical therapy there. It's just stuff that you can't really Amazon, you know, and yep. so love those opportunities. And while e-commerce boomed uh, during COVID, uh, it has started to taper. Web penetration is only about 18% of all uh, retail sales. So that means 80 or 82% of all retail sales still happening in brick and mortar. And so the retail sector wow. is That's larger than I thought it would be. Yeah. And it's still growing. And so is e-commerce, which is fine. Um, but a lot of people are looking for deals now. Inflation is high and we're looking for deals. Well, online you're paying because you're paying for convenience. And so while Amazon might have everything, it may cost more. Yes, it's free shipping if you're a Prime member, but that shipping is baked into your price. So the same product you might be able to find on Amazon, you might be able to go find 
half price in a discount store if you're willing to go into the store. So you just see some trends like that. And while people are pinching pennies a little bit more because they're scared of inflation, uh, they're looking for discounts, they're looking for deals. And a lot of times, you know, just like we've seen in Walmart and Target and all these big retailers, they went and bought a bunch of stuff. Now they're having fire sales, man. And you got some sweet deals if you're willing to go into the store. So you thought about all those. Office is a little bit unique right now. I do think there will be a return to uh, the office. I think it's going to be different and um, certain class A well parked and highly amenitized uh, buildings are, are going to do well. Maybe not your big high rises down in the central business district that has, you know, all 25 floors or one one business. That's probably a scarier investment. But if you got 30, 40 tenants in one office building, each person has five, 10,000 square feet. Um, it's a perfect little mix. And it, it, it's got like this joke. I, you know, I always talk to investors and, um, you know, we're, we're in a retail shopping center and we're having a coffee and they're like, I'm telling my thesis. And they're like, man, I just don't think that uh, retail shopping centers are going to do very well. I step out of the door and I said, just, I, I just, I just point back to the building that we walked out of. And I say, that is a neighborhood retail office or shopping center that we're buying. Same thing with an office building. We go down to a, a, a investor's office. They're in a, you know, 5,000 square foot, you know, suburban class A office building looks great well parked everything's around there we have a meeting and they're like we're never investing in office and i'm like we literally just walked out of the same <laughs> talking about so just things to keep in mind right you gotta be a little bit yeah better, um you know and, and we're not much to, to go along with the, the bandwagon effect mm -hmm. yeah so along those lines like what are the what are the biggest risks that you guys see or biggest risks that you're looking out for when you're either underwriting deals or just deal sourcing yeah. So on the multifamily side, I think you got to be really careful um, on your basis. And, you know, we always go back to what are the rents, you know? So if it's, it's uh, $750, um, you know, monthly rent right now. Okay. Um, you know, probably can pay $75,000 a unit. We'd like to pay less, but uh, probably can pay seven seventy five thousand a unit. What we saw during COVID is a big price spike in, in just commercial pro property prices starting in October of 2020. And that really started a hockey stick growth. It's it's leveled off and actually come down, but it's settling somewhere very, very much higher than what it was pre-pandemic. And so that's going to have to still continue to come down on certain asset types. Um, so we're, we're very much a basis type of investor. Location is very important, but our basis needs to be good. What are the intrinsic values of the cash flows that are coming in on this on the property and then we need to discount those for future uh future you know cash flows and so we have right. to be able to say okay yes um if you've renovated 15 20 units great what are you getting okay fantastic we will use that number in our underwriting we will not use market i had jay parsons on my show not too long ago uh economists over at real page and he was telling me they have seven million units that in their database they get to look at on a regular basis most properties are 100% occupied and they're just out there putting rents out there for market and advertising them to say, you know, hey, if I can get $300 more than what I'm getting right now, um, let's just go test the market. So these advertised rents are not necessarily a good place to go when you're going your underwriting. You need to know yep. what are people paying right now? And I think a lot of people in Phoenix are feeling that right now because oh, yeah. what's happening in Phoenix is a bunch of people move there. Um, they found out it's really hot. And uh, they're leaving and uh, the, the job market is not the same 
as it is in maybe Dallas Fort Worth, but they paid the same cap rate in Phoenix than they did in Dallas Fort Worth. And so it's just, you know, you got to be, you got to know your markets, you got to understand, but you got to be conservative and be patient. And you can never let capital uh, really push you into doing a bad deal. Um, and so we go back yeah. to basis, we go back to what are the intrinsic values of the cash flows that are coming in? What do we think that they can go to because it's already been proven? And we can do, if we can do that and we, we can we can figure out the, the renovation costs, then we feel good about that. So that's one thing is just not getting caught up in the hype of, you know, hey, we got capital, we need to go place it. Um, we need to be patient. And then what can you actually operate? You know, I mean, I have scattered site multifamily in rough areas here in Kansas City, and I have uh, 100 unit plus unit deals in uh, Des Moines, Iowa. And I can tell you uh, which one's easier to manage and which one's easier to forecast on. And it's not the scattered site multifamily that we bought for 35,000 a unit. It's the 120 units that we bought for $112,000 a unit. So long story short, it's just what, what can you operate the right way and make sure that you can implement a business plan? Um, everything looks good on paper, but when you get out to actually doing it, um, you need to know what your constraints are and mm -hmm. uh, what's your what your value is and what you're good at. And uh, we're yep. finding that out um, firsthand on a regular basis. But I think that you have to be, you know, you have to reflect that in your underwriting. So if you know it's going to be tougher to manage, it's a tougher area, you better be discounting that. Because if you don't and you're not getting, comp you know, you're not getting compensated for uh, the risk that you're taking. So I think that's one big thing we always think about is the risks. And well, the last thing I'll say about risk is this. There could be a high likelihood risk that is absolutely acceptable because the financial or economical impact of that risk is very low. On the other hand, there could be a very high financial and economic risk, but the, the 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 actual likelihood of it happening is low, but you're still not willing to go forward because if that one thing does happen, it can change the whole impact of the deal. So I think that you just got to understand that there's different types of risks. And uh, as you get into operations, you really start to understand what those are. Yeah, that's a really good point. And what, what I would love for you to touch on a little bit further, if you don't mind, is perhaps the neighborhoods and the different classes of neighborhoods and also the different um, classes of asset types that you're investing um, with your company. Yeah. So, I mean, neighborhoods always look for where's the closest Starbucks. And this is kind of like an old school way to just look at it. But I mean, if Starbucks, Whole Foods, uh, Trader Joe's is pretty close. You're probably in a pretty mm -hmm. decent area or in an up and coming area. Yep. These guys, it's kind of like the Google effect, right? Like when Google or somebody goes and puts a, a big new office building or manufacturing plant somewhere, they have the best analysts and they have no constraints to the capital that they've spent to make that decision. So then you start to see all these other people kind of trickle, trickle in. Same thing with Starbucks. You know, you think about retail shopping centers, you need to have good location. You need to have good visibility. You need to have to be able to, to traffic flow needs to be going the right way. Your traffic counts need to be the right way. Multifamily is a little more difficult because you'll get told that you're in the path of progress. Well, that path of progress might be happening, but it might take you 10 years yeah. to be in that path of progress. So we go back to infrastructure infrastructure. So where's the infrastructure spend actually happening in cities? Where are the streetcars going in at? Where are the bus lines headed to? Where, where the, where's the actual city putting money in? Where are you starting to see other people do redevelopment? And that's really important to think about. You can always get on Yardi and CoStar and check out classes and neighborhoods, but I, I get out in the car and just drive and I walk and I look and I run around the areas and I try to find uh, spaces that I, I like. And I think that uh, people would want to live in and work 
work in. And so for each asset class, there's a, a little bit of different uh, aspect. But I think for commercial real estate, just in general, multifamily real estate in general, look for where the closest Starbucks is, uh, Trader Joe's, Whole Foods. If it's 10 miles away, you know, hey, that's something to think about. Uh, but also, if you're buying uh, a Class C deal, that's fine. Make sure you have the right basis. But also, where are the closest shopping centers? Where are the grocery stores? Go visit those. See who's going to those locations and see if that's the clientele that you're looking for in your building. Go drive the property at 9 o'clock and see how many cars and people are outside. Go drive it at 8 in the morning or 8.30 in the morning. See how many cars are outside. How many people are just on their porches, hanging out, smoking cigarettes, doing the whole thing? You know, or are they actually out there working so that you know they're going to be able to pay their rent? I'm not saying one or the other is better or worse. There's theses for each one. But I think that, um, you know, it's hard to get that anecdotal data if you're not in the market that you're, you're, you're investing in. And that's why we haven't we haven't really gone outside of places that we can't drive to. Yeah, that's really smart. And it's kind of like I heard recently, like the avocado toast test. Like yeah. you can't, it's not like a mile within an avocado toast. Like maybe you think, think twice about investing there. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a, that's an interesting one for sure. <laughs> the Midwest is probably a little bit harder to find avocado toast, but uh, out in California, I, I'll eat that every single morning. Yeah. I was going to say, is that even a thing where you guys are from? And, you know, sure there's, it is. Some, there's some nicer places that have it for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't eat it. I'm allergic, but you know, it is what it is. <laughs> um, so back in, Commercial real estate, you do multifamily. So is there like um, 50 doors, 100 doors? Is there a range that you guys are trying to shoot for when you're looking for assets? Yeah. Good question. You know, when we got started, we were buying smaller stuff. And like I mentioned, scattered site multifamily management is not easy to do. Um, we, we do it in-house. And so I can speak to that firsthand. Um, we really look for properties that we can have an on-site manager. And I know that, that everybody says that, but there's reasons for that. Um, just having somebody there that people can talk to, leasing efforts, all of that. I mean, even if you have to go from one property to the next, it's only three or four minutes away. That's still time for your employees that they have to get in a car and drive over find a parking spot. I mean, it just, it's, it's uh, efficiently, you know, is not, uh, is not a hundred percent there. So, you know, we love a hundred plus units. I, I think the smallest deal that we'll do is probably around 70, um, 70 units now. Uh, Cause we can, we can probably get at least a part-time manager on site uh, for something like that. Um, and so that's what we're looking for. And uh, you know, we've, we started out with the scattered site stuff and, and it's done well, um, but you have to really hone in on the management side of the business and make sure that, uh, you know, if you have one property manager, hopefully you have other properties close by so they can do multiple properties. But again, um, you know, different property managers are used to doing certain classes and types of properties. So if somebody was willing, you know, re you know, used to going and, and driving to the same property and having an office there and doing that, that's great. But that same property manager is probably not the right fit for five scattered site multifamily properties that they have to operate out of their car and then come to our office and huddle up here and do all the things. So just making sure that we have the right alignment there is really important. Um, so that, that's on the multifamily side for sure. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good point. Having that in-house is the convenience factor is probably so crucial. I mean, I, I used to be a renter and I loved having the manager on site so you could talk to them like in five minutes so that was really nice and also the pools so yeah absolutely 
Yeah. So you do industrial as well. Can you talk us through like the mixed use that you're talking about? And what do you see as far as the general trends going forward there? Because I know there's a huge conversation about office. Is it going to be flex? Like what's this work from home situation going to look like in the future? But what, what are the, what are the boots on the ground saying about that conversation? Yeah. You know, I think that uh, there's a flight to quality in the office sector. Uh, my wife's a prime example. I mean, they have a fantastic office, um, downtown airport. It's wonderful. Um, they've been trying to get their employees to come back for quite some time. They, they basically said, OK, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we need you in the office twice a week. Well, she did that for the first two weeks and she's been at home ever since. And so I think it's really business specific. And uh, some businesses have done really well uh, via Zoom and, and being able to collaborate on teams. Um, that's usually the younger companies that have adopted technology and the ability to use Slack or Teams or, or Zoom, or they were already doing that previously. So maybe they had a headquarters in Kansas City, but they had clients across the country. So they were already used to doing that for businesses that, you know, maybe like an architecture business or even a law firm or, um, you know, a commercial real estate firm, that's a collaborative business. And yes, you can do Zooms and mm -hmm. all of that stuff. But I tell you what, there's some intellectual property that's being lost uh, by not just being in the same room, uh, in the same office and being able to, to literally just walk out of my door and talk to my team. So, you know, I think that uh, it, it just depends on the size of the business, the type of the business. I think office is going to be interesting to watch how this hybrid kind of model happens. And whether that be they have smaller footprints, maybe they were had two locations in a city. Now they're consolidating to the better one and they're doing a three-day work week that you have to come into the office. Um, I don't think the footprints necessarily of those might change because people probably want more space. And so per employee, they may demand more square footage. Um, but I've also heard from many uh, CEOs that People don't like this um, this uh, floating desk scenario where you come into the office and you don't know uh, where you're going to be set up. They like yeah. to have a, a certain spot that they go to. They have their stuff there. They got their kids' pictures on their their desks, and um, they can get set up. So I think it's very big uh, on the culture piece. And I would say that uh, you know I know that uh, Elon said that everybody's got to come back. If not, go find another job. Uh, I think we're going to see more and more people making the transition back, whether that be five days a week, four days a week, two days a week. The collaboration um, that that occurs in an office, I think, is going to. In, 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 but it needs to be easy for the employees to get to. They need to be able to park and there needs to be amenities. So we're starting to see pickleball courts. We're starting to see gyms. We're starting to see coffee shops. All these yeah. things kind of come into the uh, the office space. So I think that's going to be a growing trend. Um, I, I posted today on LinkedIn, uh, a group just did, uh, you know, a, a huge acquisition, a couple billion dollar acquisition, um, you know, eight, 800,000 uh, uh, or no, it was 8 million square feet or something like that of office. And it's all suburban office because people want to work closer to where they're, uh, they're, they're living and making it easier. So I do think that will have some impacts. And so I'm, I'm curious to see uh, how that happens. I, you know, the WeWorks of the world, uh, the flex spaces, uh, I think in the right way will work. Um, so if somebody needs to have uh, a central location, but they also have uh, some offices on the side, uh, that could work for smaller businesses. I think that's a, a good model. And so I'm tracking it very closely, talking to a lot of business owners, watching, um, you know, leasing activity in our markets to see uh, what picks up and what drops off. Um, I, I think the, the older buildings are going to struggle. I, I do. I think they're going to need a bunch of CapEx, the low ceilings, no light, cubicles. 
that's going to be a tough sell for people to come back into that office. So you're going to have to make it fun. You're going to have to make it collaborative. You need to yeah. make uh, the workspace and, and the, the culture um, good for growth. Uh, but Peter Lindemann is an economist in the real estate space. And mm-hmm. you know, he's, he talks a lot about this. You know, if you're up for a promotion, and you have been coming into the office. There's two people up for a promotion. One person has been Zooming uh, since day one. They've actually never met anybody they work with in person, uh, but they're performing really well. And then there's another person that's been coming to the office every single day. They go to lunch with the guys and gals. They go out to happy hours and they're there uh, and the promotion comes up and everybody has performed the same. Who's getting the promotion? Yeah. probably the person with the relationship. So I think yeah, a lot of yeah. young uh, employees need to be thinking about that um, and how that impacts their trajectory and their uh, career path and their growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, I think that's one thing that uh, will cause people to, to want to come back. Yeah. The other thing I would say is a lot of people working in one bedroom apartments, that their apartments are now their offices. It's where they sleep. It's where they eat. And, and I can tell you, we are social animals. And being able yeah. to change things up is extremely important for creativity, for interaction, and for collaboration. So uh, that's my stance on the office space, um, you know, in general. Uh, any questions on, on any of that? Uh, I, I can dive into any, something in more detail. Uh, you brought up something that I thought um, I would love to touch on a little bit more. And it, it's really about relationships, but not only from, you know, the employee worker workspace situation but the relationship that you have with your team and also your investors like how has that developed over the years you've you know you're you're fairly new to the industry um i think you you cut your teeth back in 2018 2019 and you're growing really fast so how are you building those relationships with those investors over time and yeah if you could just point us um in that direction that'd be great well, it's how you build any relationship, right? It's communication. It's do what you say you're going to do, show up at the right time and be there when they have questions. And so yep. uh, and take a general interest in, in people. Um, you know, this business of uh, the syndication business has really blossomed uh, over the past five years. Uh, the Jobs Act of 2012 really allowed people to start using digital marketing and social media to raise capital online. And I think that is good in a lot of ways. But at the same time, um, Midwestern Boy, uh, most of the capital uh, now that comes into our business is based on referrals, uh, people that have a, have a, you know past experience with us uh, and or somebody I've met or somebody else, a, a different employee has met out there. I, you know, I, I like that. I, I like that uh, part of it um, because it creates more accountability for you as the sponsor and as the operator. Uh, if you've never met somebody, you've never had a conversation with them, they're an accredited investor, they found you, they invested in your deal. It's a beautiful thing, right? I mean, just that smoothness of that transaction is beautiful. But some of that relationship is lost in there. And that's okay because some investors are just professional investors and they just want, you had the right offering at the right time, you said the right things, you built the right trust and that worked out well. Um, but I think that transparency, uh, when stuff doesn't go right, I think that communicating on a regular basis, trying to make sure that you make yourself available uh, is extremely important. Hitting deadlines that you have set uh, is extremely important and uh, building rapport with investors so they continue to feel good about what you're doing together and they can tell you, um, you know, they can bring you referrals and things like that. Those are the most important things. I mean, you know, you're in a money business when you're raising capital and um, people get finicky about that stuff and I, I, rightfully so. Um, yeah. 
and, and so you have to treat that with a, a level of discretion, a level of fiduciary responsibility, and a level of transparency that uh, isn't really present in a lot of other just transaction-based uh, types of businesses. But uh, you know, if you do it the right way, you can build a snowball effect, which really starts to grow, and um, you know, you'll you'll be not chasing capital anymore. The capital will be chasing you. And that's kind of how we've tried to position ourselves and treat people uh, along the way. Yeah. I love every bit of that. Um, thought you hit on some really good points. Um, real quickly, w- would you mind um, walking us through some of how your deals are structured? Like, are they 506Bs or 506Cs? Are you using a fund model? Absolutely. We've done um, 506Bs and 506Cs as we have grown. I think from a protection standpoint, just with uh, marketing and posts on LinkedIn and conversations that you're having, uh, we have we have geared more towards a 506C um, because of those uh, you know accredited investor qualifications uh, and the ability to get it out there uh, to more folks. But uh, when we first started, it was all it was all relationships and it was all just 506B mm-hmm. uh, sophisticated. Turns out 75, 80 percent of our investors are accredited anyways. Um, we don't use a whole lot of digital marketing, social media to drive traffic to deals. But, um, you know, as you are growing, you're also doing larger deals. You can only have 35 uh, sophisticated investors in a 506B deal. Well, if you're doing a $10 million raise, then your minimum investment needs to be a lot higher. So there, yeah. there are some limitations uh, to a 506B. S- pretty simple structure. We do a preferred return 7 to 9%, uh, which just means the investor's capital is going to get um, a return on it. And then the capital account, and then we go to um, the, the actual waterfall, which is a pretty standard structure. Uh, and then we do kind of a 70-30 uh, above that. So, I mean, it's pretty uh, standard on on that side of the, the structure. We have put together joint ventures before um, where we'll have one or two investors. And so we won't do uh, necessarily a full-fledged uh, syndication. Um, you know, everybody's contributing uh, the same amounts and, mm-hmm. and we've done some deals that way, which has worked well. And the fund model is very interesting to us. I will say that once you get track record, once you get uh, a bunch of deals under your belt, funds are much easier to raise. If you're just getting started, a fund sounds beautiful. Uh, It sounds great. But um, if you don't have anything to point to from a previous standpoint, it's going to be really hard to get investors involved in a fund. So uh, we will move to that Mm -hmm. model at some point. But for now, uh, all single asset syndications or portfolio syndications that we've completed. Mm -hmm. Love it. Yeah. And could you just define the difference between the 506B and the 506C really quick for those um, that aren't too familiar? And there's two really big uh, differentiators uh, on these. A 506B is open uh, to sophisticated investors, meaning you do not need to meet um, the qualifications of an accredited investor, which has income and net worth uh, qualifications. There are now ways to become an accredited investor and not meet those qualifications, whether you take certain tests or certain things like that. That was added uh, just recently. Uh, I think that's probably good for uh, for the industry. Um, But uh, 506Bs allow for sophisticated investors. So you do not meet those qualifications. You can still invest in these private offerings. The other big the other big differentiating factor is general solicitation. So a 506B, I cannot post anything on social media, digital marketing. And if I do not have a pre-existing relationship with you, you are not able to invest into my deal if it's a 506C. Um, The reason being is if I'm generally soliciting, those folks need to have a certain level of 
experience and skill, knowledge, net worth uh, to protect themselves uh, from getting into a bad deal or something they don't understand. So um, those are the two, I think, big differentiating factors that I would point to. Okay. Yeah. Really good points. And also really important for limited partners and investors to understand that difference because I don't know, you we're part of the same community and some of the things that you know, we, we see just like happening around us, you know, there's the SEC, it's very important to follow the SEC guard, guard rails in the, in the right manner. Um, so Absolutely. following those steps is very important for the deals just because you want to stay out of the gray area, right? 100%. Yeah. You never want to have the SEC showing up and serving you and um, you didn't even know you did something wrong. And um, yeah. that has happened and it will continue to happen, uh, especially as I think the government agencies are beefing up their uh, ability to get in and, and uh, regulate more small businesses and things like that. So um, definitely want to abide by those rules and make sure uh, it's black and white and not gray. Yeah, yeah exactly. And limited partners, investors should be asking those sponsors as well, like which type it is and make sure they're following all the right steps. So Absolutely. yeah, for sure. Well, Logan, thank you very much for today. All these golden nuggets. Um, where can listeners get a hold of you? Yeah. So you can follow me on LinkedIn, Logan Freeman, Mr. Kansas city, Mr. Kansas city. <laughs> yeah. I post daily over there. Things I'm thinking about ideas I've got, contrarian viewpoints. You want to follow us more closely, ftwinvestmentsllc.com. We write a weekly blog. We put out some great educational content. It's not going to be stuff that you see uh, in other places. I'm looking at Yale and Harvard's uh, portfolio models. Uh, we're relating those back to real estate. We're thinking about uh, the all-weather portfolio strategy from Ray Dalio, how to build that uh, for our real estate investors, all these different things, ftwinvestmentsllc.com and Logan Freeman, Mr. Kansas City on LinkedIn. I'm there. I'm active. You can find me there for sure. Awesome, man. That's great. I'll put that in the show notes for sure. And thanks again to all the listeners. Thanks again for reaching out, listening, and we look forward to next time. Cheers, everyone. See you, Logan.